0: Each spring, Pensacola Christian College hosts the Enrichment Retreat designed for pastors, ministry leaders, and church staff to enjoy a time of rest and to be refreshed by the Word of God. Today's message was from a past Enrichment Retreat keynote speaker. Visit enrichmentretreat.com for details or to learn more about the upcoming retreat. Psalm 131, verses 1 through 3. Okay, let's read it out loud. And I want you to read the little phrase before the verse starts. Do you see that one? What does it say? Someone shout it out to me. Okay, so start with that. Okay, ready, go. A song of degrees of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself. As a child that is weaned of his mother, my soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. So I said last night that, um, or yesterday, that that the Psalms are a medicine chest for us to take our feelings, our emotions, and things we're going through and to uh, air them to God, to bring them to God, and to process the journey that's before us. Uh, We live in a world of therapy. Uh, You can't believe the number of people in my church that have a therapist. Um, And they will pay somebody to sit and listen to them. And that's really all it boils down to. Listen and uh, cha-ching, you know, here's my bill. I listen to you just to feel better. And we live in a world that is so deeply fragile. And I don't know if you guys have been tracking the news the last few days, but the world's melting down around us, you know. I mean, the markets cra- here—we are having shrimp and s'mores at a camp. Like, you know, it's like, 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 there's nothing going on, and the rest of the world is literally panicking. You know, um, I mean, people are buying. You can't find a roll of toilet paper in America, anywhere. Okay, um, the market is totally imploding. I mean, I called my brother today. He manages my 401k, you know, thing, and. And I called him and he goes, yeah, you got a couple dollars left, you know, that's the first, he said, it's a good thing my office is on the first floor, Carrie, if it was a 10th floor window, you might not have a brother by now, Uh, jumping out his window, he's jumped out his window three times today, he said, but it was just the first floor, so (laughs) he was okay, (laughs) he was okay. So the world, here's the deal, okay, the world is breaking all around us, we know it's fragile. The world does everything it can do to avoid confronting, facing the real, true, deep fragility of, of life itself, okay? And then something like this happens and everybody freaks out. And, and by the way, uh, I know we need, to, I need, we need to encourage our church families and comfort them and be careful and follow the admonition of our health leaders and all that. But you know what we need to be thinking too? This is, how is this an opportunity for the gospel? I mean, the book of Acts is filled with believers that when bad things happen, man, they flipped it right around and preached Christ, because they realized this is the moment that hearts are the most desperate. I don't have time to tell you this story, but I had the most remarkable story on the airplane coming from Atlanta to here the other night. A lady sat down, we were plugging in her phone on the charger, she needed help, and, and she was asking me why I was coming to Pensacola, and, and it began a conversation, and I told her I was seeking a retreat for pastors, and... She ended up telling me she's from Wales. She's coming here to visit her sister. She'd been traveling all day. And she literally stopped. And she says, you're a pastor. And I said, I am. She said, I have really been needing spiritual direction. And I looked at her, and I smiled. She said, is it okay if I talk to you? I went, no, I've got to study my notes. (laughs) I'm like, duh, you know. I said, absolutely. And, you know, for the next, really the next uh, about hour, talked through that lady through a lot of life situations right through the gospel and before we landed in Pensacola she had trusted Christ as her savior she's about 60 years old uh, adult kids and grandkids she she, is first time ever on a plane a strange lady has literally hugged me uh, from the seat next to me you know and uh, weeping and she was she was a Mormon her whole life and she had left the Mormon church and it was just such a joy but my point is with this virus and all this nonsense, there are people well, right, right there within your reach that are just desperate for some kind. Of, Jeff did such a great job today talking about the worldview and, and taking, taking people on a gospel journey that actually makes sense uh, philosophically to them, that answers the philosophical questions of their heart. Where did we come from? What's wrong with us? What'll fix it? And where are we going? And that's what the whole Bible narrative answers. And people are so desperate for hope. And we have it. We have it. You know, We don't have a cure for a virus, but we've got the ultimate cure for the sin virus and for the virus of death that ultimately takes everybody out. So I I hope that we will all be asking God, how do we help our church families to ground themselves in hope and communicate hope? Because we have a a marvelous opportunity uh, as this thing unfolds. And I'm as worried as you are about all the... All the other implications but at at the end of the day we need to step back and go catch our breath and go wait a minute we're gods and god's children have always faced these types of things with faith and with courage and confidence and so we have literally access to a kind of hope and peace that is real not fake not merely therapeutic uh, not merely just putting a band-aid onto a gaping wound uh, for temporary salve or numbing mechanisms, I would call it, that, that's a stupid kind of hope. It's stupid peace. It's stupid therapy because it doesn't really heal anything. It doesn't really ground or fix anything. It just salves you temporarily uh, and kind of numbs you to the reality of the brokenness around us. So the, the hope that we find in God is a true hope. It is a substantive hope. It is a substantive peace. It's so important that we anchor ourselves in that and are able to offer that hope to others so when you come to psalm 131 there's a context there's a beautiful wonderful historical context and, and kind of a journey here that i want to take you on for the next few moments going back to psalm 120 and you can kind of mark this down or write it down in your you know on a piece of paper in your mind psalm 120 to 134 each of these psalms at the very beginning you'll see this in all of them the very first description says a song of degrees, a song of degrees. And there's a couple of uh, opinions on what precisely that means, but there's a, general, uh, there's a general favoring of one of those opinions, and I kind of land there as well, because it just makes sense when you read the Psalms, okay? And, and i, I got to go back into, we need to take a journey temporarily away from the Psalm into ancient Israel, okay? And um, talk about big picture, Ancient Israel before Jesus and then during uh, the life of Jesus, especially his childhood. How many of you, by the way, have been to the Holy Land? Wave at me if you've been to the Holy Land. Okay. If you ever get to go, go. Um, But but I'm going to describe some things that when you actually go, you'll you'll, you'll see this and experience this. So ancient Israel, God decided to show himself to the whole world. And he decided, I'm going to show myself as the true God to the whole world through one man. And that man's name was? Abram or Abraham, okay? And through his family, which would become a nation, the nation of Israel, and we know them as God's people. Why are they God's people? The same reason you are God's people, okay? God has always had a people through which he would show himself to the world. That was his plan in the Old Testament. That's his plan in the New Testament. Um, And so in big picture, though um his plan has morphed we have more information today than they had in the old testament the general foundational components of uh god wants a relationship with mankind sin is in the way uh there needs to be a substitutionary sacrifice relating with god is based on grace by faith uh, in a substitutionary sacrifice all that goes from genesis to revelation it's 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 pervasive through the bible um and so, God, God, I'm going to show myself, is, is his plan, to the world through this, through this man and the family and the nation that he becomes. And so, in reality, you could take the, the most ardent skeptic or atheist and say, if you, want to, if you want evidence of God, if you're willing to accept rational evidence, the best evidence on the planet for the reality, the existence of God, and the identity of God, like, who is that God, what is that God? The best evidence for it is the history of the nation of Israel, what God has done in the story of Israel, and it is a story of miracle after miracle after miracle over thousands of years, and it is how God decided to reveal himself. Well, everything he taught Israel to do in terms of sacrifice and worship and ceremony and laws and traditions and all of it, we know, was looking forward. It was, these are, this is radically simplifying the terms, I understand that, but the, the Old Testament system of sacrifice and ceremony and worship was never meant to become an end unto itself. And we know this. It was never meant to be a work system to get to God. It was always meant to be representative of these concepts of substitutionary sacrifice. And like we look back to... ...to the substitute of Christ. They were looking forward to a final substitute. And it lost its sense. It lost its essence as the people got away from God. But the original sense... ...going all the way back, frankly, I believe, to the Garden of Eden... ...I I believe that God taught Adam and Eve... ...about sacrifice. And about a lamb. And about the shedding of blood. And the remission of sins. And wrapping them in coats of skins. I believe... Now this is just me, okay? I believe... He taught them an Old Testament rudimentary understanding of gospel, okay? And I I believe Abraham understood that and and going forward to Moses. And I believe that they were transferring this generation to generation. Um, And so all of it was about who God is, who we are, and how do we come to God, okay? How do we come to God? And so eventually you come to the the tabernacle. You move forward from tabernacle to temple. um, And the idea of tabernacle and temple... Uh, coming all the way forward is, where does God meet man? Where does man meet God? And, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the Old Testament camp, the tabernacle was the center of the camp, and all of life was supposed to be built around the presence and the ruling of God. And then you come forward to the temple, and this is uh, where visiting the Holy Land will give you this picture. Um, Jerusalem is elevated. It's up in the hills. Um, it's, it, it sits on the top of several hills. There's valleys that run in and through the city. And Temple Mount is the, this, this, this top stone cap of a place that was selected for uh, the first temple and then the second temple. And, and it's, I mean, it is massive. It is a massive mound. And still today, this is sandstone. It's in the right sunlight. It's glistening gold and beautiful and amazing. Okay. And um, it was a place for ancient Israel that represented where they meet God. Now, it's interesting, and I don't have time to sidebar here too long, but the idea of temple comes forward. And, you know, Jesus, when he started his earthly ministry, he walks into the temple like he owned the place, drives everybody out, turns over the carts, resets everything. Why? Because not only did he own the place, he is the place. So... So the temple represents where God meets man until God comes to earth. And now God is with us, so he is the temple, okay? And so the building, which the Jews came to uh, kind of anchor their national identity, their pride, they, they were so tied to their systems, and they had so hijacked God's ideas and perverted them to just a system of extortion. It was literally a cartel in Jerusalem uh, using religiosity to impover- to keep people in bondage and in poverty, it was it was a, it was a terrible thing, and so no wonder Jesus walked in and, and drove them all out because this is God now he is the temple, and it, it, and you go even further, he dies, he resurrects, he leaves, and he sends the comforter, of the holy spirit and then so go with me if the pla- if temple is where God meets man and jesus said i 'm going to come into you and send my comforter into you." and you can become the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, then what does that make you and me? Help me out. Temple. You guys ate too much shrimp. <laughs> temple. So that's, you know, Paul, I mean, what a, what, a, what a mind-blowing thought for first century people to think, wait, I'm a temple? Wow. Okay. And, and uh, the work of God unfolding through all these centuries. Well, one of the things that God orchestrated ...for the nation of Israel, going way back before Jesus. But this is where I want you to think about Jesus' childhood in particular. Jesus grew up in, in Nazareth, okay? Nazareth is roughly 90 miles north of, of Jerusalem. And if you think of the, of, of, the, of the state of Israel or the nation of Israel, think of it this way. And there's a lot of places in America that are like this, okay? Think of coming from the west to the east. Uh, the Mediterranean coast is obviously lowlands um, that, are, that are real fruitful... And then you get, I don't know, maybe 30 miles inland, and it starts to incline into foothills. And if you're in the Jerusalem area, that would be Judean hills, okay? And then you climb up through these mountains, and you come through these passes, and it's really rugged, rough country. Think a lot like Colorado, not quite as big in terms of the mountains and size, but, but rugged, rough country, a little bit like Southern California as well. Um, and you come through these passes and ravines up to this plateau where where Jerusalem is, okay? So think of the, the, low, the coastal lowlands coming up into a spine that runs the length of the country, almost the length of the country, that's, that's these hills, and it kind of caps out at, at Mount Carmel, which is more like a ridge that's miles long and has a peak. Okay, then, then, then it descends. On one side you have the Mediterranean side, so that's real fertile. When you get onto the eastern slope, descending down towards the Jordan River Valley, it gets real rugged and sandy and deserty, kind of like New Mexico or phoenix or you know some of these desert places it's still real rugged uh but it's really really dry and sandy and it's there's there's not any vegetation until you get down by the river the jordan river as you go north up that jordan river valley um you come to the sea of galilee okay if you turn left just before the sea of galilee you go up the jezreel valley which is called megiddo and it kind of hooks up around uh, back towards the mediterranean it's a gigantic valley so when you, when you come up the Jezreel, so if you're, going, if you're coming out of Jerusalem, you'd go, you'd go down through the mountains to the east, you'd end up at Jericho, you'd go straight north up the Jordan River, and then you'd hang a left at Jezreel Valley and come coming around this valley, and then in the distance there's this, there's this peak of mountains, uh, hills I should say, and Nazareth is up on the peaks of those hills. And that's where Jesus grew up. Um, the reason it's important to understand this geography is that God mandated For the nation of Israel, three times a year, to leave their homes, to pack up their families, and to walk from their homes to Jerusalem. It's called a pilgrimage, okay? And they would make this pilgrimage three times a year, the idea being uh, to worship, to reconnect with God. It was almost like a family reunion and a party and a celebration and a time of worship, and it was somber but also celebratory, there was feasting, there was sacrificing, um, and they all had their nuanced purposes and reasons for, for, for meeting. But the idea, the big idea behind it was, um, and, and the, the, the thing I want to lift out of this in, in part is the pace of life. And I want you to think about this for a minute. From Jesus' early memory as a child, growing up in Nazareth uh, with, with faithful parents three times a year, and the idea is kind of like Sabbath, but on an annual basis. So just like God said, I want you to do all your work in six days, and I want you to have a 24-hour period that you just rest, and you just enjoy. And, and in that sense, resting is trusting. You're, you're, you're trusting me to let to run the world, and, uh, and, I, and, and God was essentially saying, I don't want you in your life to be consumed, to be owned and dominated by productivity. I don't want you to be owned by all the work that is still yet to be done, that is undone. Now think of a first century ancient Israel, agrarian, hard to survive culture and life. Uh, there's always more farm work to do. There's always more cultivating and harvesting and getting ready. Survival was hard, hard work. And it could have easily turned into seven days a week and 52 weeks a year. And and God said, no, I'm your God. I'm your provider. I'm the one that sends the rain and the harvest. I'm the one that's going to make sure you have enough. I'm going to take care of you, which, by the way, is a powerful reminder at a time, just like this in America, okay? Okay. But he didn't want them to be so consumed with their own survival that they got eaten up with incessant hard work. And so, one day a week, he forced them basically to rest, and it was a gift to them. It was not an obligation, it was a gift of God. I'll take care of everything for this 24 hours, you just rest. Worship me, rest, restore, recover, uh, and pace yourself. So it was, uh, now, now get this, remember this is before Mass transportation or communication. So there's three weeks a year they're going to be in Jerusalem feasting, celebrating, sacrificing, worshiping, which means, and by the way, it's a 90-mile it's a walk. And it's an arduous walk. So take a couple days. Think, think you're Joseph and Mary and you've got uh, your little Messiah son Jesus and, 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 and his siblings. And three times a year, you've got to stop life entirely. You've got to pack up uh, several weeks' worth of provisions. And you've got to walk. And better part of a week, six days-ish, you've got to walk to Jerusalem. And I, I want you to think on this in terms of not, um, again, not obligatory, but anticipatory. Like you anticipate vacation. Like you anticipate Christmas break or a spring or an Easter break. You anticipate a time where you're saving and preparing and you're loading up the car and you're taking the kids to Disney or you're taking the kids to the beach or whatever you do for vacation. This was a time that they would have highly anticipated. okay? And they would have packed up everything and begun their long family walk with their village. So the entire village kind of together, which, which you can understand why they lost Jesus when, when he was 12. Okay, this, this big group of people, probably the kids with the ladies and the dads and they're lost in conversation. The kids are playing and running around and throwing rocks and kicking and, you know, just like your kids would be doing on a, on a, on a long journey like that. Are we there yet? How much longer? And, and, and so easy to lose your kids, but, but this whole entourage of people in great anticipation, work has ceased, uh, burdens have been laid down, and we're going to Jerusalem. And we're going to see people we love and we're going to gather around that, that, that temple, and we're going to feast, and we're going to thank God for his provision, and we're going to sacrifice. And some of it's going to be somber, and some of it's going to be celebratory, but it's going to be fun. And still to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, it's, it's, it's incredible, the spirit of that city. Uh, this last time I was there, I, just, I, just, I broke away from the tour group, and I just took a day or two, and I just walked around the city, uh, the old city, and, then, and, and some of the area around there. And the, the, about 5 o'clock at night, that city comes to life. And I mean, there's kids playing soccer in the streets and they are celebrating and they are feasting and there's music and it's just a happy place. It's nothing like you think, you know, the news tells you about. And you just get this sense of that culture. And so they're walking. Now remember, walking three miles an hour, six days to Jerusalem, anticipating a week there, six days back, better part of three weeks, uh, three weeks three times a year. How many of you get 9 weeks of vacation? <laughs> Some of the school teachers maybe, but 9 weeks in addition to the to the weekly sabbath. But better part of 9 weeks a year, God said, slow down. Come to Jerusalem. Come to the temple. And anticipate the journey. And so they would have descended out of the hills. I just picture this in my mind. I picture Jesus can't wait to get to Jerusalem. They love this place. They love this week. I could picture them coming out of the hills of Nazareth, down the Jezreel Valley. They would have stopped at the Gihon Spring to load up with water, maybe Gideon Spring, which isn't far from there. They would have rounded a bend and come into Beit Shan, which is a huge Roman city, Decapolis city. And uh, they would have maybe spent the night there. Uh, they would have then touched, uh, headed down to the Jordan Valley and, and south it would have gotten more arid and dry and barren as they got to jericho which is like a desert city and then they would have started the arduous now remember this i'm going someplace with all this arduous climb it's 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 called wadi kelt it's it's uh, what you would picture in the good samaritan story it's this winding canyon road sometimes it's just super super narrow that winds all the way up into uh the the region of jerusalem and as they came into Jerusalem, they would have been anticipating um, this site. And I want, this is what I want you to hold on to. This is so powerful to me. If you go to Jerusalem today, um, if, you, if you come around the, 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 the southern wall, southern steps of the temple, which were the main steps up to the temple, and you come to the uh, southeast corner, this was the pinnacle... Um, you You can stand there with the temple Mount behind you. you can look down this hill, and to the left is the Garden of Gethsemane and then you can track the Kidron Valley, which is just not a very big thing it's just it's just a little ravine. You can track it all the way around to literally the steps that are still there that go up to caiaphas's house um, and and you can just you can see the journey that Jesus would have made at night from the Garden of Gethsemane but the, the first journey I thought of when I, I did this walk, I just, I, on my own, I just walked down there and I walked down the Kidron Valley. It's really a trashy place right now. I mean, there's one, one side is Israeli and one side is, is uh, uh, Muslim, but it is just trash. It's just all trash. But I'm walking down this valley and I stopped and I turned around and I looked back up towards the Temple Mount. And the, and the floor of the Kidron Valley, Kurt Skelly told me it's like 60 feet higher today than it, than it would have been in, in first century. And I stood there where they would have rounded the bend coming into City of David and the Temple Mount and the pool, um, I think it's Pool of Siloam, which is down there where they would have cleansed at the, at the base of that hill. And right now, half that pool is buried. Somebody has a house there, and they, it's their backyard. Strangest thing ever. Um, they won't let them excavate the rest of the pool because it's their backyard. <laughs> um, so you're standing there, you see that temple. And I stood there a, a few months ago, and I just—I just I just... About this journey, three times a year, Jesus rounding the bend, and it would have been the experience for a first-century Israelite would have been like you getting on a subway train, and and riding that train to to the southern tip of Manhattan Island, and coming out of that uh, tunnel up onto the street and coming around a bend and seeing the Freedom Tower. Okay, imagine the breathtaking moment, okay? So this would have been like like a skyscraper, especially for a child, okay? A golden skyscraper. And it would have have had this imposing and yet awesome uh, moment of we're here. This is where our God is. And this is uh, where we meet him and where he meets us and where we celebrate him. And it would have been... It would have been the Disney trip of all Disney trips. It would have been the, uh, okay, uh, at, Hart- at Hartford in the middle of winter, there is this thing that happens. And I, every time I've experienced this, it, it, it tickles me, okay? My wife is a Disney freak, okay? She loves Disney. She grew up going to Disneyland, so, so I bring her to Disney World whenever I can. We've figured out, you know, the flight schedules. And, and winter, New England, people just can't wait to get on a plane and fly to Florida okay in the middle of winter. And so no matter when you fly out of Hartford, if you get like like a, a southwest or a you know a direct flight, when you go to the airport to check in at Hartford for the flight on the way to Orlando, I can tell you it is like the Santa Claus exp- it's like the polar express, okay? It is kids decked out in Mickey gear, Mickey bags, Mickey shoes, Mickey I mean and parents and I mean they are they are <gasps> They're so happy. They're as high as a kite. The plane is ele- it's electric. You can't get a nap on that plane. You can't study or work on that plane. These kids are bouncing off the walls. The parents are too. They haven't had any cotton candy yet. But they can't wait to get to Orlando. I mean, and in my mind, that's what's happening as they're rounding that bend, coming towards Jerusalem. These kids are getting excited. The parents are getting excited. They're going to have a week of feasting and celebrating. Now, it's funny. A week later... If you're flying from Hartford to Orlando, it is the Polar Express. If you're flying from Orlando back to Hartford, it's the polar opposite. (laughs) The kids are sugared out, drugged up, crying, whining. The parents are in debt, frustrated and angry and discouraged. They're having the worst fights of the year, you know, on the way back home because now they're coming back to the frozen Arctic of Connecticut uh, for the winter. And the Disney trip is over. So this was highly anticipatory. It was, it was highly restorative and restful and energizing. Three times a year, nine weeks, three miles an hour, slowing down and enjoying their God. And in a very difficult day of Roman oppression and financial difficulty and survival is hard, this was nine weeks a year that the pressure came off and they just enjoyed who they were in God and the hope that they had in god now why do i tell you all that story and eat up all this time and where is this all going okay these songs songs of degrees the word degrees is referring to an ascent and they're the psalms that they sang on the way to jerusalem okay so i've got four grandkids my my playlist is mainly baby Shark. How many of you know Baby Shark? Baby Shark, doo, 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 you know, you probably too much, okay? Either that or Hot Dog, Hot Dog, Hot Diggity Dog, okay? Um, or moushka, mushka, me, you know, I don't even know them all, but but I, 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 you know, those those are my playlists. But these families, dads, moms, kids, and everybody with them, their friends and village, walking to Jerusalem to celebrate their God, singing these songs on their pilgrimage and this is what god gave them in preparation so in the in the light of all that read the psalm again with me okay picture these people journeying and singing and renewing their joy and their hope in god Uh, and read it uh, look at look at it with me lord my heart is not haughty nor mine eyes lofty neither do i exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me They're relinquishing something there. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. And my soul is even as a weaned child. There's a rich truth there. They've relinquished something in verse 1. They're receiving something in verse 2. And then they're anticipating something in verse 3. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. So... This was a hopeful, long, arduous journey, but it was destination-oriented. This was God saying, stop your life and remember who you belong to and remember what your life is. You're going somewhere. You are on a long uphill. And by the way, no matter where you are in Israel, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going uphill. That's why the Bible always says they went up. We think of that in terms of north and south. No, it's elevation. So they're always going up to Jerusalem and they're always coming down from Jerusalem. And, and the picture here, I can't, it's inescapable for me because what I see is God teaching me in a 21st century context that basically my life is the same. I'm working hard to survive. I'm working hard to raise my family. I'm working hard to keep my marriage together and help my church be healthy. And survival is hard and life is hard and it's arduous. But there are some times where God wants me to pull aside. He wants me to worship Him. And He wants me to remember that I am on a pilgrimage. And it is an uphill pilgrimage. And it is a slow, long trudge. But it is a destination-oriented journey. And God, for them, God was the destination. And so it is for you. And so it is for me and for my family. And until I enter His presence, I can trust His providence. Until I enter his presence, I can trust his providence. Here it is. A hopeful heart. This is a prayer, right? A hopeful heart is a prayerful heart that is upward focused, forward focused. It is destination oriented. And it keeps this fragile, broken, temporary life in perspective of a higher destination. It keeps this... This short journey in perspective to I'm looking Godward, I am worshiping Godward, I am focused Godward, I am focused on the destination. I'm not going to get so overtaken emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, so overtaken with today's concerns that my priorities get out of whack, that my heart loses hope, and that I have no relationship with my God. It is that relate, it is this journey that keeps all the other All the other priorities of life in perspective. A hopeful heart is thinking and worshiping and journeying its way forward, not merely feeling its way forward. And not owned by the imminent, uh, uh, smaller priorities of today, but journeying the pilgrimage forward. Mark Twain said it this way, we all do no end of feeling and we mistake it as thinking This was God's way of saying, put aside all your concerns and remember and reorient your your life and everything about your family to to, to who I am and where you're really going. I want to share with you very quickly some takeaways from this. First of all, write this down if you're taking notes. A hopeful heart releases life's pilgrimage to Jesus, to our Savior, to the Lord Jesus. Now, I realize in the Old Testament, they they didn't have a... uh, a person, Jesus, in mind like we do today in the same sense, though they look forward to the Messiah. But look at what David says, and look, and think of these people again and every journey they take to Jerusalem rehearsing these principles. Look at verse 1 with me. Lord, my heart is not haughty. The word haughty is proud, lifted up, full of self, self-willed, self-sufficient, presumptuous, okay? He, he, he's crying out to God, Lord. I mean, just that word how does that reframe your heart? When your eyes go down and your focus goes down on horizontal things like, like mine tends to do, you start thinking about problems and challenges and how do I get out of this? How do I fix this? How do I survive this? But David lifts his eyes up. Lord, I belong to you. I'm under you. I worship you. And, 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 and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release my heart from the presumption and the pride of thinking that I'm really in control. I'm going to release myself from the burden. Look at what he, the way he, he phrases it. He says, nor mine eyes lofty, same kind of, of concept as, as a heart that's haughty. But here's where he kind of defines what he's talking about. Neither do I exercise. That means to engage or to immerse. Or to be taken up with, to be involved with, okay? Neither do I exercise, boy, do I need this message tonight, (laughs) myself in great matters. Great matters, listen, things beyond me. i got to be honest with you. I I lead a relatively small organization. But my mind's been churning the last three days. And I've been in a lot of news and a lot of conversations. And how do we navigate our church forward if, if the state of Connecticut says we shouldn't meet? How do we have school? How do we pay teachers? I mean, all these questions are racing through my mind. And uh, it's very, it would be very easy for me for, to have a haughty heart and lofty eyes and to immerse myself in, frankly, things that are beyond me, things that I have no control over. And David is releasing himself, and he's teaching his nation, his family, um, to do the same thing. Neither do I exercise or immerse or entangle myself in great matters or things beyond my control, things that are just uh, up to your providence and beyond my ability to even wrap my brain around. look at this, comma. or in the things too high for me. What is he talking about here? Things that are hidden, things that are mysterious, uh, things that, that we don't fully understand. And I realize there are people out there that think they have taken everything in the Bible and they've got it all down. More power to them. There's a lot of the Bible that to me is still mysterious. It might be this. It might be this. We're not really sure. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Let's see how it all plays out. I, I, I'm not going to get too opinionated or too divisive about something that mm, could be either or. Okay, But the the, the basic principle here is... Learning to release things you cannot control, questions you cannot answer, mysteries you cannot solve, problems you can't fix, people you can't change, things that are too big for you and things that are beyond your reach and things that are not within your purview or your providence, things that are, that are just outside of your care and learning. You can't have a hopeful heart as long as you are immersing your heart in things that your heart has no business even stewing over. Jesus said it this way, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Do you see the contrast? A haughty, lifted up, proud heart versus uh, I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't, I don't know what this virus is going to do for our church or school, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how God's going to meet the needs. Amen. I was talking to my wife and son today, Lance, and we were talking about all the possibilities, and, and I talked to a couple of our leaders, deacons and finance team, and, and uh, none of us are panicked. Uh, we've seen God navigate us through some really complicated things in the last seven and a half years, and so we know he's fully capable. Um, but it, there, is this, there is this need to be decisional about, like, how are we going to respond emotionally? And how are we going to lead others to respond emotionally? And will we take the burden on ourselves, or will we release the burden back to God and, and trust his providence and whether you're a young mom trying to figure out how to be a mother and a pastor's wife and, or whether you're a church planner trying to navigate all the complexities of, of shaping a new church or whether you're just standing in the pulpit on Sunday going, I, I feel so insufficient, I don't know how to do this, I don't know how to bring about life change. There is this moment of God, I can only be me, I can only do what you've given me to do and I have to let go of everything that's beyond me. Much of our hopelessness and restlessness is the result of attempting to control or direct things that are outside of our power. And you're just not designed to carry all that. You're not designed to stew in all that. Life is too short for it. You don't have the emotional margin for it. And so there's great power in on your pilgrimage in singing a song that releases to God. Think about it. There are questions you can't answer, circumstances you can't control, realities you can't reverse, realms God has not appointed to you, situations that you don't have enough information on or influence, a lot of opinions, but that's all you have. People, here it is, think about this, relationships you can't change. Do any of you, don't raise your hands, anybody have a relationship you've tried to resolve, you've tried to be at peace, you've tried to reconcile, but the other party will have none of it? Those are so, if you really have a heart to be at peace and to love and to preserve a relationship, and the other part of the relationship has walled you off, that can literally eat you alive. Especially if you're a pastor and they're a member of your flock and you so desperately want their health and their thriving. I had a man uh, for months blocked me out and wouldn't even talk to me about a complicated situation, wouldn't even talk about it. And I appealed to him in a couple different ways with no response. His response was, I don't want to talk about it. And I mean, months went by. And for about a month, that just chewed at me and chewed at me every, every time i drive by the exit for his home. I'd think about him, and it would just consume me for an hour or two. Uh, God, what do I do? What do I do? And finally, God just said to me one day, Carrie, don't let go of your love for that man, but let go of your anxiety over this. You can't control him. You don't have any. And you know what God said to me? You can still love him, but, but don't worry about changing him. That's my job. Who is it in your life that you wish you could change? Some of the ladies are like, (laughs) pointing, you know. Who is it that you wish you could change or reshape, and it's driving you crazy, and you're all tied up in knots, and God would say to you, it's not your job to change them, it's your job to love them. Let me change them, you love them, I'll change them. And, And what a different level of anxiety, what a different psyche you would have if you would take Verse 1, and relinquish and release your pilgrimage to the providence of God. There are a million providential mysteries woven into the brief journey you're taking on this planet. The harder you try to control them and to be your own providence, the more haughty and self-assured and self-willed you will become and the more frustrated you will live. And anytime something is go go your way, it'll all break down. Our journey is to be characterized by prayerful hearts that relinquish pride and presumption, things beyond our control, things we don't understand, aspects of our story with which we disagree with God, and just to say, God, I'm putting this in your hands. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are past finding out. So first thought, a hopeful heart releases life's pilgrimage to Jesus. Second thought, you still with me? A hopeful heart discovers... I love this, deep delight in Jesus. Now, again, I'm I'm putting the name of Christ into this because this is our context. But imagine, again, the annual three times a year anticipation of the the further they got from the fields and the workshops and the survival of of hard life in in Israel, and the closer they got to Jerusalem, uh, the anticipation and the joy and the delight would, would come back. It would, it would be totally resetting. Kind of like the Lord's table is supposed to be for us. It's supposed to reset us at the foot of the cross. How loved we are. Uh, how secure we are. Um, how graced we are with, with a generous father. And, and, and this journey would have recovered in them whatever loss of delight that had occurred over the last period of months. So David, look what he says, and this is so profound in verse 2. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself. You know, there's something about this virus that I'm looking forward to. We didn't have, snow days in Connecticut are amazing. You guys don't get those down here. Uh, Do you? I think there was one like 100 years ago. Um, But we didn't get any this year. Like, Connecticut people are kind of grumpy right now because they feel that winter cheated them you know it's like we still had to be cold and we still had to deal with the barren landscape but we didn't get the days off work to sip hot chocolate in our pajamas by our fireplaces because that usually happens five six maybe seven times a winter and you you just kind of come to anticipate that and i was saying to my wife today i said well i'm kind of bummed that we can't have church and school but it'd be kind of nice to sit around (laughs) and just kids what do you do this is god's fault He's providential, right? If We can't have church; it's his problem. Uh, this is his church. This is his school. This is—I think you said that today. This is his college. This, these are—this is his doing. So we'll start having church when he tells us we can have church again, you know. And we'll trust him to pay the bills. And there's something about—I don't know—the next few days that will be a little bit tense, but also a little bit. There'll come a moment where I'll just go, "Okay, you know, let's play Monopoly. <laughs> let's, you know, wash our hands and enjoy some brownies," and you know. <laughs> Watch Frozen too. I don't know. I mean, um, so we'll. We, but but pausing and discuss. But look at what he says. I've behaved myself, acquired myself as a child that is weaned of his mother, a soul that is even as a weaned child. What does that even mean? Okay. Well, again, let's go back to ancient Israel. Help me. Help me think through this. When a child was born in first century Israel. What is the only source of food for that child? I can't hear what you guys said. Did you say mom? Yeah. Mom. So mom is not a person. Mom is not a heart to love. There's no relationship here. Mom is a vending machine. <laughs> Truly. Okay? And I don't, those of you that are children, you get this. Children... They're cute. They're wonderful. They're they're very expensive. But more than anything, they're stinking selfish. I mean, from the very first moment they come into existence, they are demanding that your life completely revolve around them. They're utterly thoughtless. They, They don't care about you at all. They don't care if you're asleep. I mean, feed me, change me, reorient your whole life to keeping me alive, okay? They're totally insufficient. They, I said to both of my sons at the birth of all their kids, you realize he owns you now. <laughs> you think you're the head of your home and you're leading your house. No. This kid owns you now. Like, and several hundred thousand dollars from now, uh, <laughs> you'll be an empty nester and you will be tired. And I just tell young parents all the time, listen, like, like whatever age for a long time, for like the next couple decades, you're gonna be poor and tired. Just 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 accept it. It's just how it is. Just be tired. Okay? It's just part of the joy of parenthood. I frankly, I don't know how we did it. God gives parents the energy they need when they need it. But I'm telling you, I'm so glad when the grandkids come and when when they go too. It's like oh. you know, and how they can take a house that's perfectly picked up. And within two minutes, it was like Hurricane Fran came through. I mean, just every it's like they just go around dumping stuff, emptying stuff, throwing, it's like this floor is much too clean. <laughs> just throwing stuff everywhere. It's just unbelievable how quickly they could destroy a house. And then Dana, you know, and me and whoever picks it all up. But so kids are very selfish. And mom is is, is not a person to love, she is an object to draw from. She's an object for survival. In the first century, even more so than now, like we wean our kids pretty quickly off their bottles and their formula now. I mean, some parents are just way overachievers. You know, kid's six months old. Look at that, he's eating a steak. You know, we feed them Well, they're on solid foods already. Whoa, you know, my kid ate solid foods before your kid did. We're so competitive in that way. I got the best kid in the nursery. Um, So we wean them really fast, but in the first century, they didn't. They were years uh, of being attached to the mom. Now, think think about the conditioning of the child over years. And the weaning process, whether the kid's three or four or five at the time, the weaning process was arduous, complicated misery. It was chaotic. Because this child now is being forced off of the mother's supply by the mother. So in the child's mind, this is torture. This is abuse. This is uh, robbery. This is my survival, and you're not feeding me. So imagine, okay, the anger and the screaming and the temper tantrums and and the crying and the demanding for a season that the child goes through. And yet the mother, the loving mother, And parents understand what's best for the child. The child needs to to learn a different uh, relationship with mom and a different mode of survival. And so the weaning process was very, very painful and, and really traumatic for the child. But the outcome of the weaning process was beautiful because the child would find food and could learn to feed itself and now when the child is running to mom's arms and, and, and resting in mom's bosom, it's not selfish. It's in love. Now the child's running to mom saying, I love you, and I want to be in your lap because I love you. Not, I want to be in your lap because I want you to feed me. And so what David is saying to the nation of Israel is, I've learned, God. Get this. I've learned, God, you are more than a vending machine. I've learned how to come to you, God, because I love you, and because I delight in you, and because I enjoy you. And it's not to say, hey, the same God that wants us to delight in him does say, uh, make requests with joy. Okay, You have not because you ask not. So there's nothing wrong with asking from God, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus taught us to pray these things. But he he is a generous, gracious provider, but oh, he is so much more. And if you're going to have a hopeful heart, you're going to have to have a weaned heart. You're going to have to develop the capacity to enjoy God and to delight in God and to learn to love God for who he is, not just for what he gives you. Not simply as a survival mechanism. Not simply as a source of blessing, but actually someone you delight in. And that's what David is saying. My soul is quieted and I'm resting God in you because I've been weaned and I am cherishing you for who you are, not for what I'm trying to get from you. I love this quote from Tim Keller and I'm almost done. Tim Keller said, prayer is the way to experience, listen, the powerful confidence that God is handling our lives well, that our bad things will turn out good, That our good things cannot be taken from us. And our best things are yet to come. And that's what the pilgrimage was all about. Thirdly and finally, a a hopeful heart flourishes in joyful anticipation. A hopeful heart flourishes in joyful anticipation. And look at verse 3. Let Israel, now David is praying for his family and for his nation. Generationally thinking I'm praying, God, let all of Israel learn how to hope in the Lord, how to place their confident rest in the Lord from henceforth, from now and for. Ever. And 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 basically here's what I see in this life at 51 and with grown children and 30 years behind me in the ministry. And and, and I see it this way: we walk this life, we fear our God, we celebrate the hope we have, we invite others into that hope, we teach our children about that hope, and then we enter eternity. It kind of sums up that way. And I don't know the minutiae and the things you're worried about and the bills you're trying to pay and all the all the, the, the details that. You're stewing over right now, but I know this psalm gives you permission to put them in God's hands, to take your pilgrimage one day at a time, that slow uphill trudge, and I know God wants your head up and looking outward and anticipating the destination of your journey. You know, without Jesus, aging just stinks. It just stinks. But because of Jesus and because of the destination aging is highly anticipatory life gets harder the body breaks down but the journey the destination is mind-blowing the journey to jerusalem would have ended with great joy and great delight and celebration and the kids would have been jumping up and down and and so happy and there would have been great feasting and great reunions and and great joy in the city and 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 oh the hope that would have been reborn in them uh, is, is tangible in this psalm. Warren Wearsby wrote of hope, Hope is joyful anticipation of what the Lord will do in the future. Let that sink in for a minute. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth, from today. Coronavirus, today. Marriage struggles, today. Parenting problems, today. Church problems, today. Hope in the Lord. Wearsby says hope is joyful anticipation of what the Lord will do in the future. Based on his changeless promises. Like a child being weaned. May we fret at our present. We, we may fret at our present circumstances. But we know that our fretting is wrong. Our present circumstances are the womb. Out of which new blessings and opportunities will be born. I love this quote. Uh, my daughter sent me this from John Piper. I don't know where or when he said it. But but think deeply about this. Occasionally, weep deeply over the life that you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Feel the pain. Think about that. Occasionally, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. There's not one of us in this room of any age that has the life we would have scripted. How many of your life is exactly like you expected to be when you were 18 and graduating from high school? Everybody laughs when I ask that question. So he says, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be, grieve the losses, feel the pain, then wash your face, trust your God, and embrace the life that he has given to you. I've got to tell you a quick story, and I'll shut up. Uh, my grandson, Chad, four years old, this past summer, we drove down to Orlando. Our whole family, three families, really, It was kind of funny. About two months before vacation, we didn't have any plans solidified. Both of my boys kind of ganged up on me, and they came and said, Dad, we really want to do a big family vacation all together. I'm like, yes, that's awesome. And and then I got away with my wife and started thinking about this, I said, I think they just want us to pay for it, really. But it feels good, you know. So we drove down to Orlando. We rented this house. It was the most economical thing we could find on the East Coast, I think. And and, we were standing at this development that had a lazy river. Anybody ever, and you know what a lazy river is? Okay. You get an in inner tube, you float around this thing. My grandson Chad is four. He hasn't been in a lazy river in a, in a while. He hasn't been ever in a lazy river. He hasn't been swimming in a, in a year. But he is decked out in, in like Disney swim gear. I think it was uh, Cars, uh, Lightning McQueen. I think he had a Lightning McQueen swim shirt. Swimsuit, swim vest, you know, water wings and shoes and mask, I mean, and a snorkel. And I I mean, this kid, you would think he's an Olympian (laughs) Disney swimmer, like he is a member of the Disney swim team, right? So we get out there in the morning and we get our spot. And I see Chad kind of wander away from the family. And he goes, it's it's this tide pool that goes gradually out and gets deeper. And then the lazy river's out there at the deeper part. And Chad's standing there by the edge of the water. And I can see, though he's got all the gear, I could see, like, I'm thinking in his four-year-old mind, it's been a year since he went swimming, he probably doesn't remember it, and this must look like a vast ocean to him, you know? And he's been anticipating swimming, but now that he's looking at the pool, it's like, you could see his chest. I could see the nerves and the fear growing in him. And I just, the family was unpacking their stuff, and I kind of noticed Chad, and I walked over, and I thought, oh, he's getting kind of freaked out about the water. And I grabbed his arm and I scooped him up in my arms. And I said, Come on, Chad, I'll take you. And I began to wade out into the swimming pool with Chad in my arms. And he, he freaked out. He starts clinging desperately to me, wraps his legs around me, starts climbing my torso as the water is coming up. You know, he starts to get higher, trying to stay out of the water, and he's clinging to me and wrapping his arms. It's like all of a sudden he's got eight legs like an octopus. He's just <laughs> everywhere. And I'm, I'm trying to pry him off and calm him down. I'm talking to him, and he's not hearing me, which is always a dangerous place to be with God, by the way, where you're so frantic and worried that you're not hearing him. I'm Papa. I love Chad. and I'm, I'm, He's in no danger right now. I've got him. Okay? But he, boy, does he think he's in danger. His emotions are going crazy. So we get out to this lazy river, and, and I'm, I'm standing there, and he's, he, you could take this kid and throw him into a 100-foot deep pool and he's going to be like a bobber. He's so, he's like wrapped in bubble wrap. He's ready to float. I mean, he would just want to sat right there on the surface. He would not have sunk. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking to him and I'm like, Chad, calm down. It's okay. Papa's got you. Papa's got Papa, 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 don't let me go. Don't let me go. And he's frantic. Okay. And I, the more, the further I get in the water, the water's coming, the more panic he's getting. And I'm, I'm like, Chad, it's okay. It's okay. And I, I I lowered him down and I said, Chad, stand up. And And he's, He wouldn't stand up. Now, i got to tell you, Chad's about this tall, and the water is about this deep. So it really would have come up to about here on him. And I realize all of his panic is for nothing. But again, he doesn't even hear me. Chad, stand up, Chad, stand up. Finally, I realize I've got to wean him. I've got to put him through fear. I've got to do something of a chastening nature, a nurturing nature to to get him to release me so he can stand up and realize... This can be fun. You're know, like, this can't be, he can't be this anxious and fearful during the whole vacation. And so I, I, I got down by his face. I'm peeling his arms off of me. And I finally got him, you know, from wrapped around me, and his legs are floating out behind him. And I, grab, I got him on his body. He's like, pop, pop! don't let me go. I mean, the further he gets out and, and, and lower into the water, he's panicking even more. I finally uh, got, got his arms, the tops of his arms and I let him slide down until I grabbed his hands. So now he's floating out that way, and he's looking at me, and I got his hands like, Papa, don't let me go. Don't let me go. And I said, Chad, stand up. And he would not stand up. So then I realized the only thing I could do is terrify him for a second. <laughs> so I could solidify him for the rest of vacation. I need to terrify him for a second so I can solidify him for the rest of vacation. So I kind of put my leg around behind him and I, I, I kind of pushed his legs down into the water and then, and then, with his face right in front of me, I let his hands go. And I, and when I did that, the look on his face—it was like in slow motion. Papa! you know, like we lived on the space station, and I just sent him out into into, into the cosmos. You know, it was terrible. You know? And this is all a fraction of a second. I reached under the water and I grabbed his ankles. And I start to pull him down. So now, not only did I let him go, now I'm killing him. Okay? And he's like, look at her, papa, my papa's killing me. Somebody help me. You know? and, and I grab his feet and I pull him down in the water until his feet land on the, on the concrete at the bottom of the pool. And he's there and his head's right here and, I'm, and he's landing on solid ground. And I looked at him and my face is four inches from him. I go, Chad, stand up. And I smile at him. And the look, this, I wish I had a video of this moment, because he goes, oh. and he looks down in the water, and I stood up, and he just gradually comes up like this. And he looks at me, and he goes, oh. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Wherever you are on your pilgrimage, you have a God You have a destination and your God and your destination are so sure it is the solid ground under your feet that you don't know is there. I mean, we know it's there, but you know what? We don't know it's there until we're forced to touch bottom and it's then you wonder in the split second, why is God doing this to me? Why is Papa letting me go? Why is Papa dragging my feet underwater? But then you you hit solid ground in the gospel. And you stand up. And you look into the face of God and you go, Oh, oh. Now, I've been thinking about Stephen the martyr. Preaching the gospel, desperate for the Pharisees to come to Christ. Begging them to believe in Jesus. There he is. Don't you see him? I mean, I think he wanted them to convert even in that moment. And they're throwing, they're pummeling him with rocks. And I'm wondering, as he's loving them even in his death, I'm wondering in the back of his mind, is he disappointed that he doesn't get to live longer and preach longer? Is he disappointed that he's being taken out? And why? Why? Why would God do this? It doesn't even make sense. Why would God? It seems like God would need him but there was a man standing there consenting unto his death who was kicking against the pricks, Saul. And I got I, I, I to believe that Stephen got to heaven and Jesus went, see, see that guy, Saul, right there? See him, Stephen, right there? He's going to change the world. And I think Stephen went, oh. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I don't know what you're dealing with in your life, but there's an old moment. I know right now it's, oh, but one day it's going to be, oh. So take your pilgrimage, relinquish the things that are beyond you, let it go. That great hymn of the faith, let it go, okay? Delight in your God. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. This one lady got that joke. Everybody's, (laughs) Okay. Delight in your God and keep hoping. You've been listening to a message from the Pensacola Christian College Enrichment Retreat. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but we ask that you do not charge for it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. If you're a pastor or ministry leader, join us for the next Enrichment Retreat and experience a time of physical rest and spiritual refreshment. To learn more, visit enrichmentretreat.com.